I knew a man who grew up in a single-parent home. His mom did her best when she tried to raise him as her only child, but she killed her own pain and stress with booze. Habitually, his mom overdosed on alcohol, was drunk the majority of the time in the home. Uh, She often was too drunk to parent this young man when he was a child. And she told her young son how much she loved him and how much she would look after him and how everything was going to be okay, but he didn't buy a word of it. He had seen and lived too much, fending for himself from the youngest of ages. It's a hard thing to believe that someone is going to keep a promise when they've broken all the other promises made to you. It's a hard thing uh, not to have your head messed up as a child when the one human person God puts into your life to care for you most uh, neglects you most because of alcohol. In grade school, this particular young boy packed his own backpack every day. And he went off to school in that backpack carrying extra food and drink and extra clothes and a penknife with which he could make a campsite if he came home and his mother took off. He took with him to school every day in the back, but whatever he figured he needed to come home after school to if his mother was dead or gone. Such is the burden of not believing any of the promises which are made to you. The boy, the troubled boy, grew up to be a troubled man, incapable of entering into healthy and trusting human relationships. And to this day, He is a man who is still fending all for himself with all kinds of worst-case scenarios swirling around in his complicated mind. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can heal this man's damaged emotions and warped ways of looking at life. But as yet, the man has not bowed the knee to Christ, although he's heard about him often. God, no less, has made many precious promises to his chosen people, Israel. But the Jews, like the boy man of the story I've just told you, often discounted those promises. The Jews lived as though they really didn't believe that the promises of God would be delivered to them. Sad, condemning, complicating, impoverishing. The no-miss recipe for either being driven or being discouraged. We as Gentiles, if we somehow discount or doubt the promises of God, one of two things will happen. We will either be driven people, or we will be discouraged people. In Romans 3, 1 through 8, we want to see three thoughts we need to resist. We need to resist all of these thoughts as we come to this passage. The first thought, I'm not Jewish. Second thought, I'm not sure that these verses apply to me. Third thought we want to resist, I don't think that I have discounted God's promises to me. Please, if any of those thoughts are your thoughts, reject them. Consciously, I believe, and sometimes unconsciously, we all doubt God's promises made to us from time to time. And so while you're Looking in your Bibles, I invite you to go to Romans 3, verses 1 to 8. And as you turn to Romans 3, 1 to 8, and as you focus on it, 
bear in mind that you are bringing joy to your Lord, who is the Lord of his word, when you give your undivided attention to his word in these minutes. Lord, please help me to break your word correctly, to show its truth accurately, and to do this with a humility, knowing that although I am an under-shepherd, I am a sheep. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are five objection questions in these eight verses. Five objection questions found in Romans 3, 1 to 8. The first objection question is this. Is there any advantage for being the Jew? Is there any advantage to being Jewish? Now, to understand this uh, question, we have to look back to chapter 2, verse 29, the last verse of chapter 2, to understand why chapter 3, verse 1, asks the objection question, is there any vantage for the Jew? Or what are the benefit of circumcision? Go back one verse, 2.29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, capital S, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So with that truth of the last verse of chapter 2, the idea that true Jews are the ones with inner reality, not with outer religious ritual, comes three ones question, is there any advantage to being Jewish? And verse 2 gives a strong yes answer. Look at verse 2. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. First of all, means there's a list of advantages to being Jewish, and the first thing in that list of advantages, of utmost importance advantage, is something the writer calls the oracles of God. The oracles of God. This was a way of saying the entire Old Testament. The, the Gentile, the non-Jew, had not the Old Testament scriptures, but the Jew had the great and foremost advantage of having the Old Testament the scriptures, and especially the Old Testament promises of a coming Messiah and of a coming messianic kingdom on earth, thousand years, a millennial kingdom. This was a great advantage to being Jewish, to have the Old Testament scriptures that promised a Messiah one day and promised that that coming Messiah would have a kingdom. Great advantage. So the Jews... Most important advantage was the possession of the Old Testament, which promised a savior and a king. On to verses 3 and 4, chapter 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. These verses give us objection question number two. Objection question number one, recall, was, is there any advantage to being Jewish? Objection question number two, does unbelief cancel the promises? Does unbelief cancel the promises. Please notice that verse 3 names all of God's promises to Israel the faithfulness of God. It's like the writer 
bundles up all the many promises that God made to his people, the Jews, in the Old Testament, and he relabels the whole package, the faithfulness of God. Verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Now, just what aspects of faithfulness are in view here? Like I said, the faithfulness of God is the sum total of all of the promises that God made to the Jews in the Old Testament, and to get even more specific, the covenants that God unconditionally entered into with the Jews that we find in the Old Testament. This is the faithfulness of God, to be specific, in the Old Testament. The covenants that God struck with Israel, which covenants, you say? Well, the Abrahamic covenant, God's faithfulness in respect to the Abrahamic covenant. We read of that first in Genesis chapter 12. It promised a Jewish nation, a Jewish land, and that the Jews would be the vehicle of blessing to the world because in this humanity, Jesus Christ was Jewish. The faithfulness of God in the Abrahamic covenant, but there's more. The faithfulness of God in the Mosaic covenant. Exodus chapters 19 through 40. The Mosaic Covenant is also called the law. The law, the Ten Commandments, and all the rest of the law that God dictated to his people in chapters 19 through 40 of Exodus. God's faithfulness in respect to the Mosaic law. God basically said to the Jews, obey my law, and I'll bless you. Curse my law, or disobey my law, pardon me, and I'll curse you. It's the only conditional covenant that God struck with Israel in all of the Old Testament. God said, obey my law, I'll bless you. Disobey my law, I'll curse you. There's more, though. The faithfulness of God, not only with respect to the Abrahamic covenant, not only with respect to the Mosaic covenant, but also the faithfulness of God in respect to the Palestinian covenant. That is Deuteronomy chapter 30. That was God unconditionally telling the Jews, you will have a piece of real estate in Palestine that I will give you. You know what? They don't have all the land yet, but they will. And they'd be foolish to give away any more land for promised peace because it will not buy promised peace. I believe that Prime Minister Netanyahu will not make that mistake that other Jewish prime ministers have made in the past. The faithfulness of God in respect to the Abrahamic covenant, the faithfulness of God in respect to the Mosaic covenant, the faithfulness of God in respect to the Palestinian covenant, but there's more. The faithfulness of God in respect to the Davidic covenant, the covenant made with David, 2 Samuel 7. Essentially, God said that Messiah, humanly speaking, would sit on David's throne in Jerusalem to rule his kingdom on earth. It's going to happen. Bank on it. There's more, not only faithfulness of God in the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Palestinian covenant, Davidic covenant, but also in the new covenant, which is Jeremiah chapter 31. This is God's unconditional promise to his Jews that one day they will believe on Messiah and be given a new heart of flesh instead of their current heart of stone. This is the faithfulness of God as a summary over the covenantal promises of God in the Old Testament to the Jew. All of that faithfulness of these covenants smashes, writes off, and dwarfs the question, if some did not believe, will their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Will it? No. God is the promise keeper, the perfect promise keeper. 
God's delivery on his promises to Israel is not predicated on Israel being obedient. These are unconditional covenants except the Mosaic covenant, which we call the law. God said in that conditional covenant, you obey my law, bless you. You disobey my law, curse you. All the other covenants are unconditional. And so when it says in verse 3, what then, if some did not believe their their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Then verse 4, may it never be. Strongest negative in the Greek language. May it never be. Meganoito. God forbid, we might say in the the vernacular, are you crazy? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, although every man found to be a liar. It's God who is true. We mess up with lies. We mess up with not delivering our promises at the wedding vow. We mess up our promises when we sign a contract at work and don't work all the hours we signed at work. We're the ones who are the liars. God is never a liar. He keeps his promises. Verse 4 emphatically screams, does the unfaithfulness of a Jew break the faithfulness of God? Verse 4 screams, are you crazy? God forbid, may it never be. Perish the thought. Strongest negative in all of the Greek of the New Testament. And so the thought started here with the right premise that Jews were not believing in God's promises for them. That was true. When Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, the Jews, many of them, were not believing the promises of God would be theirs. Like my friend who packed his backpack every school day with all he needed to survive in the woods without parents because he didn't believe his alcoholic mother would care for him like she said she would. Oh, yes, there were Jews back then who did not believe in the faithfulness of God. But did their unbelief nullify God's faithfulness to keep his promises? No. No. God is absolutely faithful, while his chosen people have often been unfaithful sinners. Aren't you glad that's not just true of Jews who are unfaithful, but of us God is absolutely faithful while his chosen people have often been unfaithful sinners. Then verse 4 goes on to quote Psalm 51, verse 4. You recall, I hope, that Psalm 51 is David's psalm of confessing his sins of adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. And in the second part of verse 4, In my Bible, these are capitalized letters to signify it's a quote from the Old Testament, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. The idea here is that when King David sinned against God, God justly judged him while keeping all the promises of the Davidic covenant made to him previously. What did that look like? How did that play out? After David's sin with Bathsheba and murder, premeditated murder of Bathsheba's husband, we know that when he confessed his sin in Psalm 51 that God forgave him his sin because he should have been stoned to death. There was no sacrifice for King David or any other Jew under the law for premeditated murder. But God showed mercy upon him and forgave him because he confessed his sin in Psalm 51. But, the aftermath of his sin with Bathsheba wrecked havoc the rest of his days. 
You know, you can choose to sin and I can choose to sin, but we cannot choose the negative consequences of our sin. David couldn't and neither can we. Here's how it all played out. After David's forgiven sin, there were strife and immorality within David's kingdom. 2 Samuel 12. The baby conceived in the adulterous union died. 2 Samuel 12. Then Amnon's immorality followed by his violent death. 2 Samuel 13. Then came Absalom's public immorality, 2 Samuel 16. Then came Absalom's violent death, 2 Samuel 17. Then David's united kingdom blew apart, 2 Samuel verse 19. But the point is, incredible body of Christ, the point is God's faithfulness to keep his promises is untarnished amid all the negative consequences of David's sins. God's faithfulness, specifically the Davidic covenant, is not aborted, sidetracked, nullified, shut down by David's unfaithfulness in sin. Because God is a promise keeper and God keeps all of his promises. God is absolutely faithful to you, each of you. God is absolutely faithful to me. God is absolutely faithful. We often blow it. We regularly blow hot and cold with respect to our love for God. We regularly blow hot and cold with respect to our leadability by God. But thank God, God is always faithful to us too. 2 Timothy 2.13, just listen. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we as believers are faithless in episodes of life, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Can't lose your salvation. Lose your reward, but you can't lose your salvation. Back to Romans 3, 3 and 4a. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, and even though every man be found a liar. Objection question number three. You ready? Since man's unfaithfulness magnifies the faithfulness of God, Is God unjust in condemning man? Think that through. The Jews that were making this objection understood that their unfaithfulness showed off God's mercy and grace. And so they were asking, if that's the case, and it is, Is God even just in judging sin if my sin magnifies his mercy and faithfulness? That's twisted thinking. Verses 5 and 6 are very carefully worded. You might say they are tightly wound like the inner side of a golf ball. By that I mean that verses 5 and 6 employ a human teaching technique called diatribe. Diatribe. This is what 
The parenthetical phrase, I am speaking in human terms, is about in verse 5. Let me read verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And there it is. I am speaking in human terms. And then another meganoito, strongest negative. May it never be. God forbid. Are you crazy? For otherwise, how will God judge the world? Oh, yes, their objection question was, since mankind's unfaithfulness magnifies the faithfulness of God, is God unjust in condemning man? Diatribe. Here's the teaching point, the diatribe of verses 5 and 6. Just listen, you'll get it. While our sin magnifies God's righteousness, it never creates God's righteousness. If our sin could create God's righteousness, then God would be unfair in judging our sin. Let me say that again. This is a tightly wound diatribe, a teaching technique, like all the elastics inside a golf ball, golfers, when you cut the cover off. It's tightly wound reasoning. I'll say it again. Verses 5 and 6 are saying this. While our sin magnifies God's righteousness, it never creates God's righteousness. If our sin could create God's righteous right to judge sin, then God would be unfair in judging our sin. That's the argument. But our sin only magnifies and does not create God's right to judge our sin. God's right to judge our sin is independent of us. He's the creator. We're the creatures. And here's the bottom line of the diatribe, verses 5 and 6. Let me get right to the chase. The bottom line, God's righteous right to judge human sin is established purely by God's own person and character. God's right to judge human sin is solidified purely by God's own person and character. God is other than us. He is over us. He created us. He sustains us. He provides for us. He protects us. God is other than us, and he's over us. That's what gives him the inherent right to judge our sins. Objection question number four. Why is man judged a sinner? Why is man judged a sinner? Please look at verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged a sinner? This question is similar to the previous question, but this question is saying, why is man judged a sinner? Verse 7 again. But if through my lie... The truth of God abounded to his glory. Why am I also still judged as being a sinner? Will you notice how verse 7 mentions my lie? And then it references mankind's sin. I'll read it again. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged a sinner? 
Verse 7 mentions my lie, which is a way of saying mankind's aptitude or tendency to sin. Verse 7 also mentions the truth of God. See it there? But if through my lie, tendency to sin, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged a sinner? So we have right beside each other in verse 7, my lie and the truth of God, lying right beside each other in the same verse. My lie and the truth of God. My lie is a way of saying mankind's propensity to sin, and the truth of God is a reference to God's faithfulness, which is a reference here to God's truth, which is a reference here to God's scripture. So right beside my lie, my tendency to sin, is God's faithfulness in truth to give me the Bible. They're just hanging out together in the same verse, these concepts. And so the question of verse 7, therefore, really is this. If mankind's sin causes God's faithfulness to abound and causes God to be glorified, then how can God judge mankind's sin? Rather twisted, self-serving, fleshly reasoning, I would submit. So why is man judged to be a sinner by God? Here's why. Because God is the only just judge, and he knows sin when he sees it. We don't always know sin when we see it. If, if our consciences are warped or twisted, we can almost rationalize sin in our lives. God is pure. God is holy. God is all-knowing. God knows sin when he sees it. Why? Is man judged to be a sinner by God? Because God is the only just judge, and God knows sin when he sees it, and God must judge sin. It's not enough that God would see sin. It's not enough that God would know about sin. God must judge sin, or his holiness is meaningless. And God judged all your sin if you're a believer on the cross of Calvary. All of the wrath, all of the indignation of God on our vileness, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were heaped onto Jesus, the lamb for sinners slain. God has every right to judge sinners because God is the only just judge, and God is the one who knows sin when he sees it, and God is the true and pure God that must judge sin. God doesn't wink at sin. God doesn't grade us on the curve like some teachers do. Well, his sin is a little less than everybody else's, so I'll give him a pass. Mm -mm. Holy God gives no pass to unpaid for sin in heaven. You either pay for your own sin in hell, or you'll let Jesus Christ pay for your sin here on earth. Those are two options. Sin has to be paid for. The piper must be paid. Go back with me to Romans 2, verses 2 and 3, please. Romans 2, 2 and 3. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? (laughs) The answer to that is no. Well, we're good at judging other people's sin. Hear what she just said? Look at his attitude. Wonder if they really paid for that when they took it from work. We need to let God judge our sin. Confess it as such. Experience the forgiveness that the blood of Christ makes possible and go on in humility and integrity 
walking with a Savior who loves us so. The last objection question of these verses is number five, and it's this question. Why not say, let sin so that good will come? Why not say, let sin so that good will come? Now, verse 8, the last verse in our passage this morning, culminates the faulty reasoning we've seen leading up to verse 8 in this passage. It's the granddaddy of them all. Verse 8 culminates all the faulty reasoning of this passage by suggestion, suggesting rather that the doing of evil is okay because the doing of evil brings out God's best. Wow. Verse 8. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. Some are saying, you believe in grace? God's unmerited favor because of Christ in your life? Then why don't you just do evil because of pour out more grace? Bring out the good of God if you do the bad as a believer. Verse 8, why not say, let sin, let sin so that good will come? The answer, because sin ultimately and consistently brings wrath, not good. You know, it's Satan who says, if you have that adulterous, fair, sweethearting, that you can get away with it and it won't hurt anybody. It's Satan who says, if you cheat on the entrance exam for college and nobody finds out, you'll be further ahead. It's Satan who says, he did me wrong, and you can be sure I'm going to do him wrong. It's Satan who says, I might have to stay married to her, but I'm not going to be very kind to her. Satan takes any sin, and he changes the price tag to make you think you can afford that sin. But like I said earlier, we can choose to sin. We're free moral agents. But when we choose to sin, we cannot choose the negative consequence that goes with that sin. We can't do that. There was a farm boy who lied in a business transaction on behalf of his father with farm, a farm contract. And the farmer father found out about the lie and how it hurt the other party who did business with him on the farm because his son lied. The farmer made his boy apologize and ask for forgiveness for lying in the contract to the other farmer. And then, after he had done that, the farmer took his boy to the barn. And he had a spike in one hand and a sledgehammer in the other hand. And he said to his son, Son, I want you to pound that spike into that barn door. The boy did. And then the father said, I want you to pull that spike out of the barn door. Dad, it's going to be hard. Yeah, pull it out. I don't care how hard it is. Do it. Find a way to do it. Boy eventually, with great effort, pulled the spike out of the barn door. Then the father said, the hole remains. You lied in that farm business contract. 
you asked for forgiveness, and graciously the man forgave you, but there's a consequence that remains. He'll probably never look at you as he did before, even having forgiven you. That's the hole in the barn door that your lie has cost. Every one of us, if we choose to sin voluntarily, we're going to be left with a negative consequence that even the forgiveness of the other party will not fully take away. And so in this verse, why not say, verse 8, as we are slanderously reported as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Here's the situation. Satan was duping them, fooling them, tricking them to say, okay, let's do some evil. Let's choose some evil deeds because that'll bring good. No, evil deeds don't bring good to God. Evil deeds bring shame on God's name. We are Christians. Little Christ, we take God wherever we go. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. God does not live in this nice building. When I leave this building or anyone else leaves this building through the week and the last person sets the alarm, God no longer lives in this building. When the first born-again Christian comes in in the morning, God has come to live again in the building. Where you go, where you play, where you work, where you study, where you take medical treatment, you take the Holy Spirit of God in Jesus Christ's name with you wherever you go. Verse 8, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is sure. Their condemnation is sure because sin ultimately and always brings wrath, not good. Now, just in wrapping this up, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Because, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6 who will render to every man according to his deeds. Sin ultimately and always brings wrath and not good. And very appropriately, back to chapter 3, verse 8, that verse closes with the only rational assessment of those who would perpetrate the lie and twisted reasoning of verses 7 and 8. Here's the bottom line. Straight from God to them and straight from God to you. Their condemnation is just. The person without Christ who says, I'm going to choose to sin because it'll bring somehow good out of God. If without Christ, that's what God says to them. Your condemnation is just. At the great white throne judgment, when all the Christ rejectors of all the ages of human history, Jewish or Gentile, when they stand before Christ one by one by one, none will be able to say to judge Jesus, your condemnation of me to hell is unjust. No one will be able to say that. You see, the Jews of our passage in Romans 3 this morning, they thought somehow that their God somehow crossed his fingers when he made promises to them, that he really just crossed his fingers and he didn't intend to keep his promises of his covenants. They thought that God would fully break his promises to them, but he wouldn't. 
These Jews and first readers of this book, they thought that they could negate, wipe out, cancel, nullify God's promises by doubting him, but they couldn't because God is the perfect promise keeper. Now, wouldn't you say that a person who believes God crosses his fingers when God makes promises and a person who elevates himself to such a high standing that their behavior can take away God's promise? Wouldn't you say that such a person has a very low view of their God? And it was their terribly low view of God which twisted their reasoning to the point of hoping that their sin would bring good from God and that that scenario could excuse them from being accountable before God when they faced him. Wow. What a mess. Lowering the bar on who God is, lowering the bar on what God is entitled to do, invites perverted theology. If we will lower the bar on who God actually is and lower the bar on God's entitlement to do whatever he wants and needs to do, we are left with perverted, made-in-man's-mind theology. We never want to lower the bar. When all is said and done, Here's the problem within Romans 3, 1 to 8. When all is said and done, here's the point of Romans 3, 1 and 8. It's what I want you to take away if you don't take anything else away. Get this. No reverential fear for God is a big deal. Not reverencing God is super serious. Do you reverence God? Not just when you're sitting in this lovely sanctuary. Do you reverence God Monday to Saturday? No reverential fear of God is a big deal. It's very super serious. In Proverbs 1 verse 7, the verse that stands at the gateway of the whole book of Proverbs is a verse you probably know very well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So fear God. Love God. I want to close with four illustrations, some positive and some negative, on fearing God, because no reverential fear of God is a big deal. Number one, there was a farmer in the second church I pastored. He lived as a bachelor. He never married. lived in a very rustic log cabin at a dirt floor. He had a very simple table and two chairs when I went to visit him, and he had an old tractor. It worked, but it was super old, rusty, banged up, had a lot of scars from farming on this tractor. And whenever this farmer would come to our church building to worship God, which wasn't every Sunday, but whenever he came to worship God at our church building, he came in a taxi cab that would have cost him probably $75, and he wasn't a wealthy man. I said to him, Jim, I notice every time you come to worship here, you come in a taxi. He goes, yes, pastor. He said, my God is so holy that I'm not going to drive my tractor to the church building that's had its wheels in cow manure all week. Reverential fear for God. Second, 
A lady I spoke with who came out of Roman Catholicism into a saving personal faith in Jesus, she said, Pastor, I have really one pressing question. I was thinking she going to ask about Martin Luther or infant baptism or something like that, last rites. She said, my one burning question is, how come when I walk into a Protestant church building before the service, it sounds like a shopping mall? Why is it so noisy? Why, When we go into a Catholic church, you walk in the doors and you're quiet. I just can't get over it. When I come into a Protestant church, everybody is just yucking it up. No reverential fear of God. I'm not talking about when we greet each other. We've asked you to yuck it up and greet each other in love. But I'm saying when we come to God, we have to come with a reverential respect. And this Roman Catholic turned Protestant said, what really gets me is when I come into the Protestant church, it sounds like a food court at a mall. Number three. I told you before when I was candidating, there was a Awana commander in a church I pastored and a Awana leader who got involved in an adulterous affair that was found out. We disciplined both of them. Church disciplined both of them. They did not repent. She said to me, after not repenting, she said, well, so-and-so and I are going to find a church. I said, really? You're going to find a church as adulterers? You're just going to go and join a church, and you're both committing adultery with each other? Yeah, yeah. Well, just find one that doesn't take the Bible too seriously. No reverential fear of God. Or, this is a quote from Eugene Peterson, who paraphrased the Message Bible, which is an interesting paraphrase that I refer to sometimes. This is a devotional based on the message by Eugene Peterson. The Bible isn't interested in whether we believe in God or not. It assumes that everyone more or less does. What the Bible is interested in is the response we have toward God Will we let God be as he is, a majestic and holy God, a vast and wondrous God, or will we always be trying to whittle him down to the size of our own small minds, insisting on confining him within the boundaries that we are comfortable with, refusing to think of him other than in images that are convenient to our lifestyle? But then we are not dealing with the God of creation and the Christ of the cross, but with a dime store reproduction of something made in our image, usually for commercial reasons. To guard against all such blasphemous chumminess with the Almighty, the Bible talks of the fear of the Lord, not to scare us, but to bring us to awesome attention before the overwhelming grandeur of God, to shut up our whining and chattering and stop our running and fidgeting, so that we can really see him as he is and listen to him as he speaks his merciful, life-changing words of forgiveness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We want to avoid asking the Lord if his fingers were crossed when he made us promises in his Bible. We want to keep the bar high enough on who God is and what he's entitled to do. Or put another way, we want to never ask the Lord, are your hands tied behind your back? Fear God 
And don't push back against God's right to judge sin and sinners. I'll say that again. Fear God and don't push back against God's right to judge sin and sinners. Please pray with me. Holy God, thank you that you keep all of your promises. We have a longing now. We want never to lower the bar either on who you are or on what you have the right to do. And we have another longing now to reverentially fear you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.